This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. This is the first of a two-part interview with the Brazilian political analyst and writer Alex Hokely about the elections in Brazil and their aftermath. We discuss the rise in morphology of Lula da Silva from working-class syndicalist to defender of the Brazilian state from its own worst excesses and look at the class tensions threatening to cleave the nation's young democracy apart. In the second part of our interview, for subscribers, we examine the limitations of Pink Tide 2.0, how the far right governs without governing, and why anti-fascism misunderstands the problem of modern political reaction. You can support our work and gain access to exclusive content and events by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon forward slash Scott. Hi folks, David Jameson here, editor of Scott. Earlier this week, Jair Bolsonaro was finally uh, voted out of office in Brazil, replaced by the still quite historically recently imprisoned Lula. And in the last couple of days, Bolsonaro has given a non too certain uh, indication that he will uh, hand over. But we'll get into that. We'll get into his soft capitulation in this talk with Alex Hokely. Uh, in Sao Paulo. Alex, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Great to be here. Alex is a political analyst and writer. He is the co-host of BungaCast, uh, which is just on its 300th episodes. Congratulations uh, for that. The author of a book on the same theme, The End of the End of History, with his co-hosts, and a regular writer for a number of publications, uh, recently articles in Unheard, Compact Mag, and Jacobin. Alex, glad to have you here. Just first of all, um, give us a sense of the mood in the part of the country that you're in in Sao Paulo. Yeah, so it was very celebratory um, on Sunday night. Uh, it was obviously very nervy uh, following the election results, and they proved to be a lot closer than a lot of people expected. Um, by this stage, I, at least personally, um, was expecting it to be very tight, and, and so it proved. It was actually even a little bit tighter than even I had uh, predicted. I don't, I don't remember what my exact prediction was, but it was even tighter than that. Um, so it was a huge outpouring of of relief, of elation, um, and celebration as well. Um, you know, 100,000 perhaps people poured into uh, Avenida Paulista, the main avenue um, in Sao Paulo, I say Main Avenue, it's a city of effectively 20, uh, 20 million people taking in Greater Sao Paulo, but um, it's a place where everybody congregates, and um, it was a mood that I hadn't seen since at least 2016, which is when Juma was impeached, and there were big protests against her impeachment, but that was a pretty nervy affair, defiant perhaps, uh, whereas this was really celebratory, um, and you know, there were horns going off fireworks going off uh, everywhere around that where I live, which is in the kind of old center of Sao Paulo. Um, it's an area which voted um, in favor of uh, in favor of uh, Lula. Um, other kind of surrounding areas which are richer uh, voted for Bolsonaro. And then when you go out even further into the real kind of periphery of Sao Paulo, those places voted Lula as well. Well, we'll get onto the kind of class breakdown uh, of that in a second. But at least here where it's um, kind of 
maybe lower middle class, um, but a lot of kind of um, LGBT, kind of hipsterish kind of things as well. Obviously, here it was uh, extremely um, celebratory. Um, it, there's even a term for the kind of what would be called the gauche caviar in French or the champagne socialist in in, in English, um, which which in in Portuguese is the esquerda festiva, so the kind of festive left. And and that mood, I suppose, because you know people outside of Latin America might not know how significant a figure Bolsonaro is. But I think in recent years, he's been understood to be the sort of more dangerous, more erratic sort of primal element of the hard right in Latin America. Um, He's certainly, he's one of these figures who stood in for the rise of a certain type of kind of chauvinistic populist right around the world in recent years. Just give us a quick reminder of... Um, some of his greatest hits, if you like. I mean, what has living under Bolsonaro over the last few years looked like? Yeah, so I'm, I mean, you'll know that I'm a, a type who doesn't like to um, go in for that sort of hysterical doom-mongering, which uh, you get a lot amongst liberals and the left about the right and you know, the far right is rising the fascists are coming um because as we know that uh that tune doesn't uh, doesn't really pay off and it you know we've seen recently in Italy for example how continual appeals to anti-fascism actually just get tired and people give up. Um, So with that said, I do think Bolsonaro was amongst um, major politicians uh, around the world over this recent phase, let's say over the past decade, the furthest to the right of any of them. Um, And in a context in which, you know, Brazil has only emerged from dictatorship um, a couple of decades ago, represented perhaps the biggest uh, obvious threat to democracy, at least in his first term. Um, If you go by what he says and what he has said, when he was elected in 2018, which sent shivers down the spine was, you know, we're going to, uh, you know, we're going to machine gun down the leftists, the Petraliada, which is a sort of um, derogatory term for PT supporters. um, And we're going to send all the marginals to the end of the beach, the end of the beach being a reference to um, a site for torture and disappearance during the military dictatorship. That's on top of the usual thing which gets reported by liberal media concerning his homophobia, um, occasional racism, hatred of the poor, um, misogyny, and so on. Um, it might not be worth repeating that because I'm sure listeners will have um, heard some of this, you know, things like, oh, I, I would rather my son be run over than than be gay, you know, be seen with a mustachioed man, um, you know, which, of course, is is horrifying to us, too, as, as mustachioed men. Um, but uh, anyway, that, that gives you the picture. Now, what did he actually do over his 40 years? It was probably a little bit more similar to Trump in that regard, in terms of setting the agenda by not setting any political agenda, setting the agenda purely through diversion through creating outrages, um, basically permanently being in campaign mode, not in government mode. And um, the purpose of think of these outrages is in part to draw reaction from the establishment and from the left to paint himself as the outsider, as the victim. And so there's this constant kind of victimhood going on. You know, I'm not being allowed to govern. I'm not, you know, they're... um, they're kind of anti-democratic effectively and trying to claim that what he represented was real democracy. Um, we should be absolutely clear that that means dictatorship in his um, ideal view. Um, and with that whole context made it um, rather uh, kind of stressful on the one hand, but also it was frustrating also because the left bought into that, right? So every, it took a long time, probably until this year, until 
people started to realize don't go along with every outrage you know stick to stick to what you uh, need to focus on what it ended up being um the left's response was we need to get elected which we can come on to the limitations of that approach in a bit um kind of looking of a kind of lower down from uh you know beyond what's going on in social media um in institutional politics the reality on the ground was brazil hasn't really recovered economically um, since the very deep recession of 2015-16, there was kind of brief moments of recovery, and it's been it's been very bad. There was very rising prices, uh, which actually predated the um, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, costs of basics really shot up. I mean, in a in a very noticeable way. Um, you know, kind of a uh, a bottle of oil, of cooking oil, soy oil, and you know, Brazil, kind of the world's largest soy producer. Um, uh, the cost of soy a bottle was uh, maybe three reais, um, which divided by six or something for the for the pound, um, and it you know it was up to like twelve, thirteen, you know, kind of completely ballooning prices, and so that made life very difficult. And there was even you know I was wondering whether that might not bring out some spontaneous um, protests um, against uh, well against rising prices, you know. Um, and it didn't actually, um, and it might be worth it kind of thinking a little bit about why that was. But yeah, the rea that was the reality at the same time, what gets often reported and is an important factor in in kind of bolsonarismo, if we want to call it that, um, was on the frontier, let's say, right? So um, on the frontier between the savannah and the Amazon and the growing encroachment of deforestation into the Amazon, there... Um, they, all the brakes were off. So all the kind of restrictions and, and state bodies which would try to prevent deforestation, for example, were defanged, completely neutered, defunded, and so on. And the signaling from Bolsonaro was go ahead, right? There was even his, um, his uh, agriculture minister was um, who was actually caught in, a, in, a, in an illegal um, wood trading scandal effects, which gives you an indication of kind of where his priorities lie. During the pandemic, when everybody was attention was focused on that, uh, he said, let's run the herd. This is an opportunity to run the herd when no one's paying attention, basically run the herd through the Amazon. Um, so that I think hopefully gives a bit of a picture of um, of what the time under Bolsonaro was like. Oh, and then I guess one final element, which is important, was the pandemic. Brazil had one of the highest death tolls in absolute numbers around the world, and even in relative terms, it was pretty high. Um, over Bolsonaro's period, off seven hundred thousand people died, and. Um, You'll know that I was, uh, you know, opposed to lockdowns and a lot of the measures adopted by European countries, which I thought were um, a, a sort of uh, kind of almost a kind of hysterical reaction and uh, spoke to the incapacity of states to present um, realistic answers to the health crisis um, and said just made everybody stay at home. In Brazil, it was kind of the opposite. So I felt like I was living in an alternate universe when I kind of compared to what was going on in Britain, for example, which was that. Um, here, Bolsonaro just uh, opted for outright denial, um, even sometimes mocking people who are dying of um, of COVID or saying, you know, it's basically weakness. Um, and there was just no coordination whatsoever. Um, so it ended up falling to state governments to impose some sort of social distancing and and so on. You know, but he refused to buy vaccines. When they did buy vaccines, there was a huge bunch of graft involved, you know, over overbilling by three times um, so as to kind of uh, skim some off the top and, and stuff like that. So that also damaged his image quite a lot, at least amongst people who were, you know, not inclined to be the kind of more hardcore supporters of his or people who still believed perhaps that the state could do something, <laughs> do something for people. 
yeah, it'd be good to get get on in a bit and talk about this idea of the kind of the far right without a program, you know, which is uh, when it does achieve office, it's a sort of permanent insurgency. It never really establishes a governing program as such, constantly whines about how victimized it is. That this seems to be part of what the kind of the modern far right is. And probably reflects a wider situation in, in, in politics in general. But first, let me just ask about um, Bolsonaro. So after, after a, a couple of days after, the, after Lula won the election, he made his concession speech of sorts, but it was extremely brief and kind of vague. But um, And we've seen some of his, the hardcore of his supporters perhaps engage in some of these road blockades. But in your estimation, does it look like he's on his way out? It doesn't look like he's if there was ever a fear of a coup that that is kind of receding now. Yeah, it's almost a little bit pathetic, like witnessing <laughs> Bolsonaro just looking kind of sad. You know, he obviously went into um, went into hibernation for 48 hours, nearly 48 hours after the election result. Didn't hear a peep from him. He was wondering what he was doing. He was meeting with his uh, with one of the generals who was his vice presidential candidate. And eventually he appears um, and gives the most non-concession concession speech you've ever heard. Um, talks about uh, voting irregularities then talks in reference to the truckers who had been blockading highways. And, and there still are uh, several blockades around the country, depending on what state you look at, um, you know, protesting um, in favor of, uh, well, in many cases, protesting in favor of military intervention uh, of an actual coup to, uh, you know, to basically stop uh, the Workers' Party taking power. But that's, you know, ultimately a kind of minority of his, of even his support, right? Um, and he made reference to them saying, you know, the, the peaceful protest is always very welcome, but we can't adopt the tactics that the left does, carrying out disruptive sort of actions. Um, and ultimately, I think his hand was forced to concede, even if he didn't, <laughs> could never bring himself to say the words himself, by, um, by key allies basically conceding, um, conceding to you know so he one of his key allies the most powerful politician probably in brazil over the past couple of years has been the speaker of the house of congress um who very, was very quick to congratulate lula and we maybe want to we'll come on to a little bit about what uh what the congressional makeup is like and what that means for a lula government um but he was quick to congratulate uh lula and the indication from the supreme court uh was obviously um you know you got to stop this now um and so you know ultimately we're left to surmise what exactly happened amongst the uh, armed body of men who might have actually forced through some sort of more direct contestation of the election results all the way up to a coup attempt uh and that was you know the military and the police forces especially the military police which is who are the beat cops effectively in brazil and organized on a state level and responsible for you know tens of thousands of murders every year and uh, the indication we're left to surmise is that they were like, mm, we're not going to we're not going to back you on this. Um, and we can also, you know, probably come to discuss the reasons for why that is, you know, one suspects that if the left had been a. If there was a, you know, a strong workers movement, uh, the left had been um, basically not leading a broad front, but something far more uh, contestatory that perhaps um, some sort of coup might have been more plausible. Um, you know, but that obviously hasn't been the case. And so it ends up being a bit of a damn squib. What you have are these blockades around the country, um, which seem to be, from reports I've seen, mainly the most authoritarian, hardcore base of Bolsonarismo. Um, so it's people not just saying, um, 
you know, that the elections were frauded, um, but saying, you know, the military needs to intervene. Um, but again, that's being that's being kind of ushered out. And and then Bolsonaro finally yesterday said, uh, yeah, you guys got to stop this. And so they have mostly. You kind of hinted to it there, but um, Lula's run this time has been quite distinct from some of his past efforts. It's, it's a different Lula today, perhaps, than the 20 years ago when he he presented his presidential campaign as part of a sort of broad democratic front against an exceptional enemy, um, as is so often the kind of case in, in, in modern politics and as a reaction to the kind of kind of populist right. Um, tell us a bit about uh, what Lula's campaign was like and the coalition that he now has backing him, um, because presumably that class coalition is quite complex now and will present problems to him in the in the future so what is what is kind of lula's side at the moment yeah i mean it may maybe worth just very briefly saying that you know lula emerged as a trade union leader uh amongst metal workers uh in the kind of industrial suburbs of sao paulo in the 1970s leading the sort of new syndicalism uh the new unionism which was opposed to the old form of unionism, which was very much state-led, top-down. Um, in Brazil, you call it tutelado. The, probably you'd say it in English, something like supervised um, or, you know, kind of guardianship uh, unionism. And so it, it was very much bottom-up, um, but which also at the same time wasn't aligned with the organized far left, um, whether Stalinist or Trotskyist. And um so after that phase, when he runs for office for the first time in 1989, you have the kind of radical Lula um, attempts. And he runs in 89, in 94, 98, he loses all of those. Though he did make it to the second round. Um, then by 2002, he decides, okay, I've got to moderate my um, my approach and famously writes this letter to the Brazilian people promising moderation. Now, everybody knows that that letter to the Brazilian people was actually letter to the Brazilian capital owners. <laughs> um and and so it proved, and so very kind of orthodox macroeconomic policy with some redistributionism. There's debates in Brazil about whether it was, you know, just straight up neoliberal or whether it was uh, a sort of neo-developmentalist. And it was somewhere in between. There was a little bit of both. Um, what is what marks this election from those previous um, electoral runs in 2002 and 2006, which were successful. Um, and you can't hold, you, there's, there's a limit to two consecutive terms. So after that, um, he couldn't run any back Gilma, which he calls his greatest ever electoral success to get a relatively unknown politician, a kind of more, um, you know, back room organizer um, elected to president twice. Now, uh, this time around, it was not just a kind of moderate um, campaign, which, you know, let me let me roll back a little bit. 2002 and 2006 relied on some centrist parties, um, which are basically non-ideological parties that are just vehicles for pork barrel spending. It relied on some of them. This time around, it was much broader. He basically tried to bring in-house as many political forces as he could. Um, and this also involved, for example, Discussions with the military before being elected, uh, you know, discussions with financiers, etc. All anyone who holds power in Brazil who is not explicitly aligned with Bolsonarismo was um, brought into at least discussions, if not into formal alliance. And the most evident uh, aspect of this was appointing Geraldo Alckmin as his vice presidential candidate. Now, Geraldo Alckmin used to, sorry to, this might be a little bit circuitous, but was um, Lula's um, adversary in the 2006 election, 
in the second round. He's a kind of center-right neoliberal um, hated by the left, often called, you know, the, called the police on striking teachers and so on um, who brutalize them and, and whatnot. Uh, and he used to be part of the the PSDB party, the, the center-right neoliberal party, um, which is probably the only other ma major ideological party in Brazilian politics. And he then left that and joined the centrist PSB, the Brazilian Socialist Party. Again, you don't don't read anything into names in Brazilian parties because they probably mean the exact opposite of what of of, of the label that they have. But um, so uh, anyway, bringing this former adversary in to be his vice presidential candidate was a, a, a major signaling move, right? Um, so that coalition effectively ends up being. In, term, in electoral terms, and it actually comes to the polls, uh, an alliance between a large swathe of the establishment, not all of it, but a large swathe of the establishment, and um, the poor, and the kind of the bottom half of the working class. Um, and that's that's basically uh, who elected Lula, um, which is kind of a, a curious alliance, and we can maybe discuss what, you know, why that came to be and what it means. There's been some speculation since Lula's victory that, I mean, people have been passing around a, a quote uh, of one of his elite backers. Perhaps it's apocryphal. It could be one of these kind of media myths, but I could well imagine it's real as well, um, where this elite figure says, right, we were all united against Bolsonaro. Now we turn our guns on, on Lula. Um, to what extent is that even necessary? I mean, presumably, especially since... Lula won barely half of of votes. He he's likely to view the coming situation very cautiously and to want to stabilize the situation. Is that a, is that a, a fair reading? Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contra.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contourscot. Yeah, and that's what he was elected on. Um, it's fairly explicit. You know, there's no secret leftist agenda kind of <laughs> hiding behind this. He said he's only going to... Um, do one term. Um, we'll see whether that actually proves true, but he's already 76. So, you know, um, but also that his whole campaign was, I'm going to just put Brazil back on track. Right. So it was his, the big um, slogan is make Brazil happy again. And this is in, in keeping with the 2002 and 2006 elections, which was very sort of happy, clappy, peace and love, etc. And, and that was, a, this was a recapitulation of that and a callback to those earlier times. Um, the other things he promised in kind of more concrete terms was to defend democracy um, and to make people be able to afford a, a beer and a barbecue at the weekend again, right? To make ordinary workers be able to have a little bit of nice things, right? Um, and who can argue with that, honestly? But um, the fact is, is that obviously it didn't seem to have as much appeal given the narrowness of the victory. Um, when he actually comes in, you know, I, I don't know if the, if, the forces of the right will have to turn and indeed of the markets will have to kind of turn their guns on him because he knows what his job is 
going to be and you know he's already decided that that's the job he's going to do which is to which is to put brazil back on track so to try to reverse some of the worst neoliberal reforms and we'll see whether that actually passes congress um because what you've had over the past couple of years since Dilma was deposed um you had a constitutional spending cap the most brutal one you have anywhere in the world a 20-year constitutional spending cap which basically because so much spending in brazil is already um I don't know how you say that, but basically like set in stone, right? You can't, it's not discretionary at all. Um, it, it places a cap on any increased spending on health and education, for example, right? Um, also a destruction of the um, sort of um, you know, labor rights package, which has existed since uh, the 1930s, which is a sort of Mussolini inspired corporatist arrangement, but nevertheless guaranteed workers, um, you know, formerly employed workers uh, rights and benefits, uh, which has now um, been largely taken apart. So I don't know if he's going to be able to repeal these um, or institute a new kind of labor package. Um, but, you know, th th given the, the kind of the fact that firstly, his government is not going to be a workers party government. The party president even said this is not going to be a PT government. Um, so even at the level of the government, let alone Congress, just within um, within the cabinet, it's going to have forces of the center right, even of the kind of mainstream right, effectively um, holding important ministerial positions. So the broad front that Solula elected is going to be in government too. Um, so we shouldn't be expecting anything um, anything dramatic at all there. Um, and so it's going to be very much put Brazil back on course. The elites decided Bolsonaro was bad for business. And so this is going to make an attempt to make Brazil um, an appealing place again. Uh, you know, there were concerns even from Bolsonaro's uh, kind of agro base, right? So big agro in Brazil, which has been the only really successful economic sector over the past years. Um, even they were feeling a little bit of heat because one, Bolsonaro was doing all this kind of zombie anti-communist saber rattling against China and China has become Brazil's biggest trading partner. And that's not great for business. So the Chinese were a bit like, can you shut this guy up? What, you know, <laughs> we're trying to buy your soy, but we're not going to, and then your pork and health rest, but we're not going to continue being uh, good customers if you treat us like this. Um, and also um, powers of the global North, particularly the European Union who are like, well, if you continue deforestation, we're going to impose sanctions on you or higher tariffs or whatever it might be um, because we don't want to buy you know, soy from you, which comes from deforested areas and everything and all the rest. So I think for Lula, it's also a matter of on the international stage, making Brazil kind of attractive, um, a destination for, for investment and, and somewhere you, someone, a uh, country that you want to do business with. One of the sort of memes that's emerged in recent days since Lula won has been this um, image of him from those syndicalist days as a, a younger man with a, a big full beard and he's borne aloft on the shoulders of his fellow workers. Um, and I think it's a telling image. It's telling the international celebrants of this situation um, like to project that image of Lula because it's so much more romantic and hopeful than the, the contemporary <laughs> kind of, yeah. you know, version. I mean, I thought that was sort of just, just quite telling um, in itself. I wonder if, something that would help Lula in what it, what in many ways might disappoint his supporters, right? Despite the fact that, as you say, he's broadcast quite openly that he's going to be this kind of stabilization presidency and so on. What might help him in, in that administration is if the right continues to behave in that kind of insurgent way. So Bolsonaro presumably is 
down but not out as a figure? Is that fair to say he's going to continue to agitate? His movement is still there. Mm. But also, you, you mentioned the right more broadly has significant purchase in the various um, offices of, uh, of state. So the, the country is going to continue to be politically divided. Might that help Lula to continue to consolidate that position of just saying, look, the country's sort of almost still under attack from the right? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a really good question. I, I haven't um, properly considered that um, scenario in part because it, it's unclear what exactly happens with Bolsonarismo now because um, it, it, because it was held together. And I'm sure we'll come on to this in a bit more depth, but was held together by the figure of Bolsonaro who brought together different strands. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to the um, nitty gritty of congressional politics. And <laughs> because to, to a certain, you know, because ultimately, and part of the, the big problem politically in Brazil is that its democratic institutions are and are set up to be um, basically immune to popular pressure or, you know, very resistant to it. And it's very, um, uh, what's the right word? You know, it's basically static and, and uh, immobile. Right. And that immobility has been, um, you know, mana to the to the political class who basically as soon as you get a foot in Congress, not only do you get um, all sorts of congressional immunity for yourself in case you, you know, you want to take get a little bit on the side. Uh, it also means that um, you can govern according not not entirely to your own whims. Um, well, not govern, but, you know, you sit in the legislature, not acting according to your own whims, but only limited by what uh, the rest of Congress allows you to do. Um, and so a lot comes down to that. And I know, like, I don't want to spend too long on this because um, I, if you're anything like me, when someone starts going on about kind of the ins and outs of congressional or parliamentary politics in a foreign country, you tend to kind of glaze over a little bit because you're a little bit like, you don't know who the players are. You don't know what the tacit rules are, let alone the explicit rules. Um, so, but um, basically, Brazil has an extremely fragmented Congress, right? Um, you won't believe how fragmented um, it has. In the, in the country, there's something like 35 political parties, if not more. In Congress, um, at the last election, you had 30 parties, which was then reduced a bit. This time, because of um, because of several electoral reforms, which has forced parties to come together because there's a, what do you call it, a, like a barrier, you know, a kind of bottom limit that you need to reach to 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 get into Congress. You know, you need, you need enough support across various states and so on. And now they allow party alliances, like former formal party um kind of it's like a it's like a prenup or or something it's like they can get together before actually property merging into a single party now that's been reduced to 19 now that's really low by brazilian standards but just imagine you have 19 different parties in congress most of whom don't have an ideology um they're just there to sit in congress to get more people elected to then trade influence and trade votes in return for uh in in return for pork effectively right um so that makes it hard to analyze but at the same time if you're looking for the kind of ideological points like okay who's on what side here um there's not a lot to say right um but basically the like there's a you know it's a congress of around 500 seats and the whole of the center left which includes pt and various other satellite parties has uh just over 100 so maybe you know maybe like a quarter at the most of seats you've got a kind of bolsonarista far right um, and you've got the what is called the Centro, 
which is a morass of these parties, which I mentioned, which are called physiological in Brazil, which they just make up the body politic. They're physiological as opposed to ideological. Um, and they're just there to continue getting elected um, and to, you know, trade, trade, uh, you know, spending for votes. And that, that so that's called the Saint Terão, the big center. And it's actually what Bolsonaro emerged from, right? But it has now, because of the politicization of Brazil and politicization, especially rightwards, um, something that, you know, listeners will be familiar with uh, from, from various other different countries. Um, you've basically got a section of the centro, of the big center, which has become Bolsonarista. So it's a question about, you know, how the PT government will try to negotiate with it, with them, and whether they'll try to incorporate some of these um, sections into, into, its, into its base of support in Congress. And I think he, Lula will try to do that. So he's going to try to peel off from what is currently the right or far right block in Congress, actually bring them in to isolate maybe the sort of 50, 60 hardcore Bolsonaristas. Um, and I think that's going to be the that's going to be the game plan. Again, this also may this all makes for effectively a conservative government. Um, but it means an isolation of of the right. Now, your question actually was about kind of Bolsonaro uh, causing a stir and allowing, you know, a, basically fortifying the government. I think to a certain extent, it might do that. Um, also, because um, Lula needs to keep all of this Congress on side because impeachment is going to hang over any Brazilian president now. Since Juma, since that, since Juma was impeached in 2016, which broke at least tacit rules on how the thing should work, because she was impeached on completely flimsy grounds and basically an ulterior motive to get the PT out of office and implement this uh, very hardcore neoliberal program. Uh, it means that that's always now a, a weapon and it's going to be a sword hanging over any government, um, especially of the center left. So, you know, one of Lula's jobs is to make himself impeachment proof as much as possible. Uh, but again, this is a left a left party, which is there governing for the sake of governing, right, of, of stabilization, not to pursue uh, a program of its own. And in fact, that was always, you know, my criticism, criticism of many people of what the PT did in government, that it was too keen to be a manager of Brazilian capitalism rather than see through its program. And it did everything it could to hold on to power, which is ultimately its undoing, because it had to bring in these allies who would, who would ultimately stab it in the back. So, you know, um, it's a it's not a good situation, but we shouldn't be. I think the right way to look at it is not to treat the PT in government now as, as in some way a left party in government. It's a, it's not, and it's not a left government by any stretch of the imagination. So anyway, just to, to about your point about the, about Lula being carried on, on the shoulders of, um, of, of, of his fellow trade unionists. Yeah. It's hard not to buy into the romance, right? Um, because he is a remarkable figure. Um, he grew up in poverty, was, it was a, a metal worker, lost a finger, um, in an industrial accident at age 19. Um, hated by the Brazilian right and um, all sorts of class loathing thrown at him. Right. He's called a, a cachaceiro, like a, a, a drinker of cachaça, right? Like a, a drunk um, and various other things and, and, a, and a thief. So all the, all the hatred reserved for the Brazilian working class and poor and all the terms on which they are abused, that they're criminals, drunks, layabouts, etc., are thrown at Lula because he represents that. So 
it's hard not to come to his defense um, in that context. And yet, you know, we have to be, we have to be cold with this and and look at what he actually does um, and actually is. Um, ultimately, his great successes are biographical and symbolic in terms of what he's represented for Brazil and the symbolic incorporation of the people into, into the nation, into democratic government, much more than it is a, a practical political um, achievement. It's one of those examples as well. Um, and, it's a kind of boring point to make because I actually really love a charismatic political leader, but it's one of those things where I was I was reading again another one of the sort of memes. This is how we ingest world news now through <laughs> through the memes of whoever yeah. we follow on social media. But people sharing this thing, he gave a speech in a poor neighbourhood, and he and it was that thing you were saying about um you know and then on a Saturday and he's almost sort of describing people this sort of common common it's sort of it's great kind of um. Uh, what's the word? It's like demagogic behavior, describing back to people uh, a, a familiar experience, which is sort of comforting. And he sort of says, and I don't even understand the references to Brazilian food, but he talks about sort of dipping something in a something and drinking a cold yeah. beer. And these are obviously kind of like known, uh, meme worthy experiences amongst a certain cohort of Brazilian society. And the one uh, hand, thought... the large majority of Brazilian society, you know, having a barbecue, having your, you know, like a, a stick of meat and dip it into the flour called farofa, you know, manioc flour. And yeah, it's like it's part of daily life. And, and the thing is, it's not fake. You know, he's not like a, a kind of demagogue and a, a political entrepreneur who comes in and, and tries to portray himself as um, just like you. You know, it, it's very genuine. Um, which makes it, you know, harder to be critical of. But, um, you know, if we're like thinking politically, you think, well, there's obvious limits to that politics, which has been shown up. It's extremely charming, but it's also you're thinking, right, so I didn't realize the extent to which this is sort of almost the limits of your economic program. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. I'll stabilize the state. And also, just so you know, you'll still get to have barbecue at, at the weekend. So it does kind of show the limitations of that. I want to talk about how... Um, Lula fits into the wider picture in Latin America and so-called Pink Tide 2.0 and how maybe his experience exposes some of the weaknesses in that general movement. But before we move on to that, I just want to ask, because we've talked about who Lula's people are, outside of this sort of bizarre parliamentary scene that you've described in, in Brazil, at least bizarre from my point of view, where politics is very dominated by two very large disciplined parties at a Britain level. Um, but what, who are his people? Who are his voters? You know, who, who, who is that wider coalition? I was looking at some statistics about the Brazilian economy the other day. I didn't realize that almost like something like a third of the work, workforce are self-employed. I mean, I take Higher, it. Yeah. Yeah. So I take it. That's a huge part of it. I mean, is this a sort of, yeah, who 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 are his kind of people and who are his hardcore supporters? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a good question. And it's something that actually ends up being a bit perplexing because you hear me talking about him, you know, being supported by the establishment. So you think, oh, he's been voted by um, the middle class, you know, kind of the PMC, the, the you know, um, middle class liberals, etc. No, I, I think that have to put that aside for a second, because that's not really the picture um, on a large scale, right? Um, I described at the beginning the scene in Sao Paulo. And of course, yeah, he has the kind of, um, you know, middle class leftist support in, in big urban capitals and in Brazil, sure. But that's not um, electorally significant on, on, on a general scale. Um, 
we should actually roll back and, and, and take, take it from the beginning. So the PT base at the beginning was industrial workers, right? And then it was that radical middle class. The what In Italy, they call the reflexive middle class, you know, people who artists, intellectuals, and and, and so on. Um, people who like to think that they think about society, therefore they're, they reflect on society, etc. Um, that actually changed over his period in, in government because he actually won over a new base. So the disorganized poor, um, which... In, in Brazilian terms, often talked about as the sub-proletariat, right? It's not people who've ever gone through formal employment. Um, so it's not people who might have held a formal job but then have been unemployed or something like that. That's not what I'm talking about. And it's not like a kind of lumpen proletariat either um, in the kind of traditional European sense. It's people who either um, are still kind of agrarian, right? Small farmers and so on and in rural areas um, or indeed um, – or indeed, just rural laborers on on big on big farms, but also in in smaller towns and cities, um, who are uh, informally employed, right? So the informality rate in Brazil has gone up to forty percent now, which is huge. It obviously varies quite a lot depending on where you look. So in, in São Paulo, which is the most industrial state, whose politics are kind of maybe the most modern, if you could put it that way, you know, in São Paulo state, by the way, is is forty million people. So you know, it's a size. Of, it's the the country. It, the state is the size of the UK with a population the size of Spain. So just to give you a sense of of the dimensions we're talking about here, um, in São Paulo it's much less. It's maybe a, a fifth or a quarter of the population who are informal. In the northeast, it can be over 50% in the poorer parts of the Northeast, which has, which is the base that Lula um, conquered. It wasn't part of the original PT base because it was based in the industrial working class um, and parts of the middle class. What's now happened is that if you look at the breakdown of who voted for Lula in this election, there's a remarkable class polarization. So the this is talked about in Brazil in terms of how many minimum wages you get. Normally, that's the breakdown, right? Um, and, and the minimum wage is... is uh, a thousand reais, so divide that by six, it's it's probably about you know let's say two hundred pounds or something a month. Um, so the uh, household income of those earning up to two minimum wages per month, um, which is probably about fifty percent of the Brazilian population, somewhere around that, voted by sixty five percent for Lula, right? Um, once you go up the income scale, looking at the two to five minimum income brackets. Uh, Bolsonaro wins that narrowly, but he wins that. And then the further up you go up the income scale, um, the 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 stronger Bolsonaro's vote gets. So basically, the lower middle class voted strong. The lower middle class and and mid, proper middle class voted for Bolsonaro. Um, the upper part of the working class also voted for Bolsonaro, and the lower part of the working class, and especially the informally employed, voted for um, voted for for Lula. Um, that isn't to say that the kind of in industrial workers have, I, I'm not talking about kind of sectors or something like that, um, in part because part of the story of Brazil is that it's undergone very severe deindustrialization over the past decades, um, which is actually one of the one of the tragedies of Brazil. And, and it's the way it's one of the reasons that the PT's traditional base has withered away because of that deindustrialization. You know, and if you think about where Brazil is on the income scale, it's like a middle income country, which has undergone the sorts of deindustrialization that you've seen in, in the UK. Right. Um, and yet UK did that at a much higher income level in a much wealthier country. So you can kind of imagine the repercussions of that, which basically creates a huge amount of service sector employment and a lot of which is 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 very precarious. It's not formal. You've written an article about um, Brazilianization, uh, this idea, and you, you describe that kind of that huge informal economy as a feature of a developmental feature of, of Brazilian um, capitalism. 
but and you know that's obviously secured some um like parts of the electorate for for lula but is 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 the insecurity of that economic settlement is that also what's driving the kind of madness around bolsonaro or around these kind of evangelical christian groups you know like people talk in very crude terms about why sections of the middle class are radicalized uh, to use yeah, that term yeah. you know economic insecurity and so on these are probably quite limited attempts at explanation but is there something in the structure of brazilian capitalism that's driving that kind of radicalization among among bolsonaro's people yeah i mean you know i think one important thing is that there hasn't been growth for um for the better part of a decade right and that creates strains um in a society which is war of all against all the temptation is to try to uh, hold on to what you have um, at the exclusion of others, right? To the extent, especially on the far right, of excluding others from the political community as a whole, right? So especially, you know, people living in favelas and the, and the poor are seen by, you know, the lower middle class, for example, as as to be completely, you know, excluded, not worthy at all, right? Um, they're probably all criminals and whatever. Um, but that isn't the whole story. So, while you have that um, feeling amongst the middle class, the lower middle class, and also even sections, you know, higher up in the middle class, um, because over the period of PT's period in office, there was genuine assent of large sections of the working class into what was called the, you know, the new middle class, which is really just more an affluent working class, right? We're able to afford, in Brazilian terms, for the first time, you know, a TV, a refrigerator to send uh, their children to university for the very first time. Unfortunately, private universities, which are less good than the public universities, um, putting themselves in debt and so on. So very various contradictions of that whole Lulista approach to inclusion. Uh, in Brazilian terms, it's called inclusion through consumption, right? So it's not the working class rising up um, through labor militancy and so on. It's an inclusion at a, on the basis of consumption, and it, which is always going to be individualized, right? So like you're able now to afford... Um, perhaps to travel by plane domestically for the first time in your life rather than having to get a bus cross country. That, um, the big discussion in, in Brazil and up until the kind of crisis hit from 2013, 14 onwards, was um, this hysterical reaction often from the middle middle class and the upper middle class, like, wait, we've got workers in our, <laughs> in our spaces, right? So the, the, this, this loathing that suddenly there were working class people in the airport and thinking, you go back to the bus station, you don't belong here, right? So that created a lot of resentment um, already. And so that, that was the kind of basis for a lot of the hatred of the workers party that existed before that. But um, that is too much of a comforting story for the left to tell itself that it's ah it's just um the middle class who can't deal with the working with working class ascent because what actually happened particularly in the 2008 election was that Bolsonaro was actually able to win over a lot of the work, working class votes particularly in the big urban peripheries um so this is the kind of um how to put this i guess the um, if you want to like sum up the like working class Brazilian experience or kind of what the modal experience is, if you want, it's, um, you know, it's workers in it's working class in the big in the peripheries of big cities like Sao Paulo and Rio. Right. Um, and those people went over to, to Bolsonaro and he was able to win them over in, in part because of a disc discourse on kind of insecurity, right, of crime. Um of because it because Brazil is inc incredibly violent in that regard, you know, just to be able to protect what's yours um, from from assault, and also because the evangelical churches have 
completely flourished in in these areas over the last 20 years. What was the picture before that, you know, before you had trade unions and what you also had, which was very important, was grassroots Catholic communities, um, often influenced by liberation theology, um, which socialized, pe which provided people with community, with community support, a form of socialization, um, you know, social networks. Um, and that was and, and socialized people into kind of a more left wing way of thinking, a more solidaristic way of thinking. They, those were those fell apart for a number of reasons in part because um it was actually kind of US imperialism which which played a role in that in um trying to demolish those and foment uh, evangelical churches and, and neo-pentecostal churches in 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 Brazil um and so in that that's a way in which you know we're talking about Brazilianization this is in some ways an Americanization of Brazilian politics um and so in the in these poor communities the the evangelical church became in many ways the only kind of place for socialization especially because and and for sociability previously you might have done it you know in the factory at the workplace or right after you you leave work and at you're at the bar um with your with your workmates but um because of deindustrialization that's also kind of um you know much more restricted kind of in in terms of how many people that that uh that is a possibility for. So, you know, it happens in, in evangelical churches um, that it creates a new form of authority, you know, in a, in a society which there's very little, um, you know, very little sense of authority of, of, of in a kind of post-traditional society, you know, your pastor becomes quite important. Now, I don't want to create this idea that oh, the pastor tells you to vote for Bolsonaro and therefore everyone like sheep votes for Bolsonaro, but it is an important influence, right? If, if the evangelical church provides you with your community, with your sense of meaning and your sense of belonging, if the pastor comes, comes and says, you know, actually, if you vote for Lula, he's going to attack your family. He's going to turn your kids gay and uh, and drug addicts and whatever and all the rest of it. And you need to vote for Bolsonaro because he's the only pillar of morality who's going to defend Brazil from further breakdown. You know that's an appealing an appealing message, um, and that is something that that has has really happened, in which the left has no answer for as of yet. This is the first of a two part interview with the Brazilian political analyst and writer Alex Hokley about the elections in Brazil and their aftermath. In the second part of our interview, for subscribers, we examine the limitations of Pink Tide 2.0 how the far-right governs without governing, and why anti-fascism misunderstands the problem of modern political reaction. You can support our work and gain access to exclusive content and events by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon forward slash Scott. This is Contra Radio from Contra.scott.